0: Thank you so much for those uh, extremely uh, kind words. And um, there are many friends among you uh, to uh, welcome, but perhaps uh, I should confine myself to uh, welcoming on my right here Randall Woods and his wife Rhonda. And I welcome him with a certain degree of trepidation, because uh, he is the author of the biography of Fulbright. He knows far more about Fulbright than I ever will. And uh, the best way I can escape from this difficult situation <laughs> is to invite him to comment and correct me where I am wrong, which I undoubtedly will be, uh, at the end of, of um, my remarks. Um, I want to start with the horror story. Um, the event that had such a big effect on Fulbright and on the arrogance of power, I mean the book. In August 1964, this former Rhodes Scholar from Oxford University and then Democratic Senator from Arkansas shepherded through the Senate the famous, or I should say infamous, Tonkin Gulf Resolution, uh, which uh, followed some, frankly, murky episodes in the Gulf of Tonkin between the 2nd and the 4th of August uh, 1964, and uh, which were deemed to have constituted an assault on two US naval warships uh, that were in the area. These events led first to the first bombing of North Vietnam of the whole war on the 4th of August, uh, 19, 5th of August, 1964. Uh, And then two days later to the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which uh, was widely viewed as a blank check to the U.S. administration to uh, wage war in Indochina and um, it was on the basis of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution that half a million troops were sent to South Vietnam. Senator Fulbright repented, changing his view of the Vietnam War. He became a hero for many critics of the war and, as I shall try to show, a wonderfully improbable hero uh, for a body of criticism that had a strong uh, left-wing element in it. In 1966, he published what was to be, without any doubt, his most famous book, The Arrogance of Power. Uh, and let me make clear from the start something that was perhaps willfully misunderstood at the time. And perhaps it was inherent in the very title that it would be misunderstood. But he was referring to the arrogance not of one particular administration but of whole societies. He presented a thoroughgoing critique of US involvement in Vietnam and indeed of the overall direction of US foreign policy. Now in these remarks, which will be followed by discussion, I want to say little about Fulbright at Oxford and then to address three questions. First what was Senator Fulbright's view of international relations? Was his diagnosis and prescription, especially regarding the arrogance of power, right in his own time and is it still relevant in our times? As was kindly mentioned in the introduction, uh, Fulbright was deeply influenced by his tutor at Pembroke College, R.B. McCallum. Uh, And he was also influenced by Oxford's methods of study. Some of us have mixed memories of tutorials. I had some absolutely awful tutorials as an undergraduate student, some of them at the hands of Alan Bennett. Um, But uh, in uh, his case, uh, he had uh, clearly a a very deep intellectual relationship with the uh, history tutor who you mentioned, R.B. McCallum, who was actually new uh, to Pembroke at the time. Uh, And uh, McCallum was a great believer in international order and in these years after the First World War when there was an enormously strong sense in Britain that there had to be a better system of international relations than that which had led to the catastrophes of the First World War. Uh, McCallum's voice carried real uh, conviction. Indeed, uh, he went on in 1944 to publish a book, Public Opinion and the Lost Peace, uh, in which he defended the indefensible, in my view, the the Versailles peace structure, and said that it was not predestined uh, to fail. And in particular, the concept of the League was sound. (laughs) Um, And uh, So Fulbright picked up at Oxford a sense of deep engagement, intellectual engagement with history. The tutorial system forced him, actually, to say what he thought and to write it down. Uh, And uh, he also was reinforced in Wilsonian principles that will, in any case, have been uh, come to some extent from his home uh, environment. So uh, he uh, repeatedly said that he owed a lot to his Oxford experience. And in a later lecture here at Oxford, uh, he expressed that debt in very detailed and uh, forthright uh, terms. It was through two distinctive expressions of Wilsonian internationalism that Fulbright first made a mark on American politics. He took his place in the House of Representatives in January 1943 as the Democratic Party's new representative of the third congressional district of Arkansas. He promptly made a huge mark by attacking a speech by another new member, the Republican Congresswoman for Connecticut, Claire Booth Luce. They could hardly have been more different characters. Her speech had been a rip-roaring attack on Vice President Henry Wallace, and for good measure on Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. Uh, She invented an excellent new word uh, when she said uh, that much of what Mr. Wallace calls his global thinking is, no matter how you slice it, still globalony. That's the origin of the word globalony. And uh, one week later, Fulbright had the temerity to stand up in the the, uh, House of Representatives and say, I think it exceedingly unfortunate to assume at this time that nothing whatever can be done about controlling the savage and violent elements of the world. Such an assumption is a most powerful inducement to the very result of a new war. I submit that the only rational policy for this great nation of ours is to assume what I believe to be true that the peoples of this earth have learnt something by experience, that they earnestly desire to avoid and to prevent another war, and that they're willing to make reasonable sacrifices to attain this end. Fulbright concluded by calling for a thorough study of all proposals for post-war international organizations. This event was widely reported, not just for its content, but for the brilliant repartee with which Fulbright demolished Mrs. Luce uh, in the subsequent debate, he became famous overnight. His method of demolition was infinitely polite, as appropriate perhaps to a southern gentleman. uh, After she'd accused him of misquoting her or or, uh, attacking her without giving the precise source and so on, Um, he listened to it all. Then he said, would you like me to read your entire speech to the Senate? (laughs) And at that point, she collapsed. Um, In his first year in the Senate, he achieved an absolutely astonishing feat for a, a new senator, initiating the Fulbright Program, under which tens of thousands of students, scholars and cultural figures would benefit from international interchanges. His inspiration in initiating this came from his own experience as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. The way he introduced it was a masterclass in tactical skill and political cunning. I've gone into his earlier career in a little detail in order to illustrate his remarkable strength of character, political skill and combination of realism and idealism. These qualities, and yes, some defects too, were in ample evidence in his subsequent political career. Just to mention a few highlights of his views, on the Korean War, he supported the US participation in the war, but did so unenthusiastically. He believed, as Randall Woods has said, that communism should be contained But he opposed the effort to reunify the peninsula. And in that, surely he was vindicated by the eventual outcome after the attempt to go north, ending up in the division of the peninsula. He was a strong and consistent critic of Senator McCarthy's anti-communist witch hunts, at one point being the only senator opposing funding for Uh, McCarthy's subcommittee. He was against the Bay of Pigs invasion of 1961, Uh, an event that led another distinguished critic to write to President Kennedy and say, this was John Kenneth Galbraith, then ambassador in India. He said, as a believer in lost causes, uh, I uh, have to say to you, President, that I don't believe that any given cause should be lost more than once. (laughs) And um, uh, uh, it's an interesting piece of evidence of his confidence in his own judgment against the trend of Washington thinking uh, that he took these individual stances on both McCarthy and the Bay of Pigs. The war in Vietnam was the biggest issue that he faced. His 15 years as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a term that I think is still to this day unrivaled. No chair has held it for anything like as long. 15 years as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee roughly coincided with the US role in Vietnam. His criticism of the war didn't just start after the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. His criticism of the war expressed already uh, or had roots in a view that was expressed already in the 19, early 50s, that the US government had made a mistake in equating third world nationalism with communism. Against this background, it is his support for the Tonkin Gulf Resolution that is atypical and requires explanation. Perhaps it's the case that his judgment in a crisis wasn't always as good as it was on broader and more conceptual issues. For example, during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, he initially advocated invading Cuba rather than the naval blockade, which I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can say looks to have been the wiser uh, strategy. Perhaps in the case of the Tonkin Resolution, his loyalty to President Johnson got the better of him certainly there is plenty of evidence that he deeply regretted the tonkin gulf resolution and felt the need to atone for it this brings us to the arrogance of power first published in 1966 there's no doubt that although the book was helped by staffers and he acknowledges that in the book itself he was deeply committed to it it began as lectures it was a compilation of lectures given at johns hopkins topped off with an eight-point plan for negotiation, American withdrawal, and eventual (coughs) neutralization of all Southeast Asia. And as Randall has written, the arrogance of power was an amalgam of ideas worked out by Fulbright and his staff and skillfully edited by Seth Tillman. Hanoi's continuing unwillingness to give assurances that it would halt infiltration and cease hostilities in return for a suspension of the American bombing campaign, coupled with Johnson's and Rostow's hostility to a negotiating role for the NLF, made Fulbright's plan unworkable. Nevertheless, Fulbright's reputation as America's most articulate and influential dove continued to grow. The book made the New York Times bestseller list, and by June 1967, Random House had sold 100,000 copies. And ultimately, it was to sell over 400,000 copies. Now, if I have to summarize the essence of the book, I think one can do it in Fulbright's own words with a story he tells at the beginning. He says, the missionary instinct seems to run deep in human nature And the bigger and stronger and richer we are, the more we feel suited to the missionary task, the more indeed we consider it our duty. I'm reminded of the three boy scouts who reported to their scoutmaster that as a good deed for the day, they'd helped an old lady to cross the street. That's fine, said the scoutmaster, but why did it take three of you? Well, they explained, she didn't want to go. (laughs) The good deed above all others that Americans feel qualified, this is Fulbright still speaking, the good deed above all others that Americans feel qualified to perform is the teaching of democracy. Let us consider the results of some American good deeds in various parts of the world. Now, the book had a tremendous reception, partly because of its inspired title, which was widely interpreted, as I indicated, to mean that those in charge of Vietnam policy were arrogant, and thus brilliantly suggested that blame could be placed on the moral and personal faults of decision-makers and officials alone. Yet actually, the arrogance with which he was concerned was much more widely shared, his main target being that deep-seated part of American political culture which believes that the United States has a unique mission Um, A mission to reform the world in its own image and in particular a view of the world that believes that democracy can be imposed on virtually any and every society now here I must confess to an error and a continuing puzzle I reviewed the book when it was first published I could read the whole review to you if you really wanted (laughs) But there's one critical question that I never asked. Although it made for a brilliant title, is arrogance the right word to describe either the public attitudes involved or indeed the official attitudes? Surely there was some arrogance in both of these camps. If you forced me, I could name some names. Yet, as Fulbright's own text indicated, the real problem lay in a pervasive and widely shared set of assumptions about the Cold War and about the US role in the world. US documents of the period overwhelmingly gave the, give the impression of decision making being framed by a set of assumptions, that the communist world was largely united, that Western will was being deliberately tested by communist aggression in South Vietnam, and that a US failure in Vietnam would have serious adverse consequences elsewhere. The Munich analogy, about which one of my Oxford colleagues, Professor Yun-Fung Kong has written eloquently, played a fateful part. Now, if this analysis is correct, the main decision makers weren't necessarily arrogant, certainly weren't only arrogant, rather they were prisoners of ideas that had limited relevance to the actual problems that they faced. These leaders were guilty then of showing limited understanding of the society with which they were dealing and which, indeed, they were assiduously bombing. Fulbright was certainly right in the arrogance of power to remind us of some salient facts of Vietnamese history. Vietnam was unique, he reminded us, in being the only country in Southeast Asia where the nationalist movement had become dominated by communists. And the US, in his view, was ill-advised to get involved in a country where if it takes on communists, it takes on nationalists as well. He also reminded us that the domino theory was deeply questionable precisely because of the uniqueness of Vietnamese society and the uniqueness of that conjunction of nationalism and communism in Vietnam. And he doubted whether if Vietnam went communist others would succumb. He also Reminded us of an important fact about diplomatic Vietnamese diplomatic history (coughs) That the North Vietnamese communist regime had twice in 1946 and 1954 Been cheated of the results that they could legitimately have expected from negotiations So their militancy had particular roots in their own experience Throughout the book, Fulbright shows a deep awareness of how other peoples viewed the world and accepts that such differences as there are need to be understood and accepted, not rejected in the name of Washington's latest orthodoxies. Here he is at his campaigning best in words that resonate perhaps slightly less than they did in 1966, but still they resonate. It is difficult for an American to look at his country as a foreigner, sorry, it's difficult for an American to look at his country as a foreigner may see it. I would guess that many a European or Asian or African or Latin American looking at America today feels overawed rather than reassured by our tremendous power, (laughs) by the power of our nuclear weapons and rockets and the power of the world's greatest and possibly fastest growing economy. In an irrational but human way, they may be more appalled than impressed by the existence of such great power, even though they are dependent on it for their own security. Fulbright's critique of American policy has some deeply conservative elements. He was no enthusiast for revolutions. He did not subscribe to the left-wing critique whereby the Vietnam War was seen as driven by the search for raw materials and the systematic suppression of revolutions. He openly admired conservative heroes from Castlereagh to Metternich to General de Gaulle. When it comes to understanding the motivations of individuals and states in the conduct of international relations, he generally seems to prefer the rational pursuit of national interest to grand ideological schemes. There was a price to be paid for Fulbright's rebellion over Vietnam, and particularly for his suggestion of arrogance. His fellow Democrat and Southerner, President Lyndon Johnson, was bitter, as was Secretary of State Dean Rusk. Fulbright was repeatedly accused of isolationism, a charge that was very wide of the mark. He who had done more than any other senator to bring the United States into the United Nations, in sharp contradistinction to its performance uh, in relation to the League, uh, to be accused of isolationism had an element of absurdity. Um, Fulbright also was accused of racism. It was suggested that his alleged willingness to leave the South Vietnamese people to a communist fate had its roots in racism. And if I may again quote Randall, certainly Lyndon Johnson and Dean Rusk believed that Fulbright's opposition to the war in Vietnam stemmed from his racism. The yellows, blacks, and browns of the world were just not worth bothering about. Fulbright was indeed vulnerable on the race issue. In sharp contrast to LBJ, he failed to grasp the huge moral and political strength of the US civil rights movement and the huge damage that US mishandling of matters of race had been inflicting on US standing overseas. Historians of the State Department can testify just how many messages came back from just how many embassies about the race issue being an embarrassment to the United States in its international uh, diplomacy. If the race issue was a blind spot, and it was, it's a very odd one for somebody who believed so profoundly in both empathy and internationalism. A fair reading of the arrogance of power does not yield ammunition in support of the administration's insinuation that it was racism that explained Fulbright's stance. But the low blow did have some effect. The Fulbright scholarship program also paid a price. In 1966, Fulbright had received disturbing reports that the CIA had penetrated the exchange program and was using Fulbrighters abroad to gather information. Now, due apparently to the vindictiveness of LBJ, Fulbright program budgets plummeted and stayed low for several years. The book the arrogance of power had several defects. Yet, perhaps what was unforgivable in it wasn't its defects. It was the fact that in its central point, it was unforgivably right. Unforgivably, because in politics, to be right is often to be profoundly unpopular, even an object of suspicion. (coughs) The subsequent history of Southeast Asia the US failure, the lack of dominoes beyond Cambodia and Laos, is consistent with his analysis. And he was right also to see that there were significant changes happening in the communist world more generally. Now, does this mean that his worldview was coherent? Do his writings and actions indicate A coherent overall view of international relations. I've indicated the many ways in which he did have a profound understanding, arguably more so than the administrations under which he served. But I've also hinted at some limitations of his vision, and they were still evident in his later work uh, as in his 1972 book, The Crippled Giant. You can guess which country the crippled giant was. Um, An author of a book about uh, uh, Fulbright and his thought, Eugene Brown, has said of the crippled giant that it contains no systematic exegesis of Fulbright's concept of America's proper international role and interest. Its recurring theme is the necessity of fundamental change in the way nations conduct their relations with each other. Fulbright specifically links the national purpose with a global one. Repeatedly he urges the dedication of our foreign policy to the single overriding objective of forging the bonds of international community. And he goes on to say very critically that Fulbright was a man of goodwill and laudable ideals as seldom been doubted that his revived crusade for the international community involves a good bit more than the disinterested quest for global benevolence has seldom been noticed. Nowhere does he explicitly connect the pieces to reveal the structure of his intellectual mosaic, but neither has he attempted to hide the crucial pieces. No less than a dulles or a rusk he has insisted on the transcendent character of the American purpose. And he concludes cruelly, this is Brown still, the collapsing logic of his plea for a system of laws rather than men added one more layer to the intellectual rubble of foreign policy concepts of the post-war era. Now, that's uh, a pretty harsh uh, judgment Uh, But there is some truth in it, not least that uh, as with all of us in many aspects of our lives it's easier to criticize an existing fact or policy than it is to suggest what else should be done. Uh, And that's a situation that particularly often arises in international relations where the choices are often between bad and worse. Uh, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. His, Brown's criticism does point to a particular weakness that many times when Fulbright suggests a recasting of American objectives in the world, he ends up in a situation not unlike the people he's criticizing. He calls for a better system of rules which all the powers can observe, but doesn't say what those rules would be or how they would be implemented. And there is an element in his approach of something that um, a historian once said years ago about the peculiar character of the American empire uh, when he said that it didn't have a specific ideology other than inchoate boosterism uh, and I can't help feeling that there's an element of that uh, about Fulbright as well. Now the arrogance of power today sadly arrogance is an enduring human vice And if any of you here in this room feel you're free of it, I'd be delighted to see you put your hand up. But uh, I suspect that we all uh, suffer from it in one way or another. Uh, And there is plenty arrogance in international politics today. There was no shortage of arrogance in some of the US and UK leadership of the intervention in Iraq. There was a curious kind of temporal arrogance reflected in the apparent assumption that it was not necessary to study the tangled history of Iraq and its peoples, a lazy assumption uh, that if you put a US-led force in place, all will be well, and that in the uh, 21st century, a democracy can be taken up in ways that were not possible in earlier eras. Well, I've got news for policymakers on who, who subscribe to that kind of uh, uh, temporal arrogance um, that that very idea is not new. Um, one could find advocacy of uh, intervention to, to promote democracy in earlier centuries and it would do no harm to, to, to take some lessons from the difficulty that that advocacy ran into. Then there's the characteristic arrogance of those with access to secret intelligence, the belief that they alone know the facts. Now, I know just enough about the world of intelligence um, to know that very often intelligence agencies in the past and the present get things woefully wrong that the very secrecy of the process of amassing information itself tends towards serious distortion of the outcome. And also that with intelligence, the problem of noise is such the vast quantity of intelligence that may not be relevant to a particular issue, as well as the small amount that is. And that problem of noise also leads intelligence agencies into numerous mistakes including failing to spot what's really uh, important. Uh, So there are structural issues in the um, uh, reliance on intelligence that have, I'm sure, been made worse by the um, incredible quantities of intelligence, including all our uh, uh, email information, no doubt the text of this lecture uh, that uh, is hoovered up by intelligence agencies and uh, heaven knows what they can do with such ridiculous quantities of information. Uh, The the technique of intelligence gathering seems to have got ahead of judgment. And there is, and the principal was kind enough to mention it at the beginning, the key issue of the apparent neglect of studying other societies, their histories, languages, cultures, and worldviews. Even our f- own Foreign Office, famous for studying these matters, uh, has uh, tended in, in uh, the past uh, decade to somewhat downgrade them. Uh, the Foreign Office mission statement, I think to this day, despite constant nagging from myself and others, uh, makes no reference to one of the Foreign Office's missions as being to understand other countries. Um, there has, in practice, been a considerable change, but not before there were serious reverses, such as the abolition of the valedictory telegram, which was a fine institution by which ambassadors convey what they really understand about the, the country that they have been representing, uh, represented in. Uh, and uh, so there is a, uh, a problem there Uh, which can be associated with arrogance. I'm pleased to say that there have been signs of a significant turnaround on that front, at least in the UK government in recent years. Yet, as in Fulbright's time, so today it would be wrong to imply that official arrogance is the sole cause of the troubles of today's world. If one looks at the language and sometimes even the body language of some of those who have contemplated uh, response to Syria's use of chemical weapons and military response to Syria's use of chemical weapons, we see relatively little of the assumption that bombing will actually improve the situation in Syria and much more of a reluctant and troubled conclusion that something must be done. Pessimism seems to be at least as significant as arrogance in these attitudes. The officials today still are sometimes the prisoners of frameworks of thought about international relations that may need questioning, even modification. And opposition to government policies can also sometimes betray signs of arrogance, which is no government monopoly. The problem, in short, is also one, as Fulbright reminded us, of public attitudes and national cultures. And even if Fulbright did not have all the answers, he performed a noble and courageous service in drawing attention to this central truth. Thank you very much. And Randall, come